This is the In Self-Defense Podcast with Don West and Sean Vincent, exploring high-profile self-defense cases and identifying the lessons learned for concealed carriers. Hey everybody, thanks for listening into the podcast today. I am Sean Vincent. This is the third installment of our three-part series on the John DeRosset case. I worked on the John DeRosa case with Don West. He's, uh, of course, our own national trial counsel for CCW is safe and a good mutual friend of ours who actually uh, was hired. He was the attorney of record for this case, Michael Pinella. The DeRosa case was extraordinary in many ways because this is one of the rare instances where I can possibly think of where somebody used a firearm in self-defense against sheriff's deputies and was ultimately exonerated. If you've listened to part one and two of this podcast, then you know the circumstances that justified John's actions. If you haven't listened to those, I highly recommend you stop right now, go back, listen to parts one and two, and part three will make a lot more sense to you. Uh, But in case... uh, you don't want to do that, and you're going to listen through. Let me give you a, a, a quick recap. John Durant was a retired auto worker. He'd moved to Florida to enjoy his golden years. He lived alone, uh, at least he did at first, until his family asked him to take in a wayward niece who had chronic addiction problems. She was addicted, addicted to opioids. She had resorted to prostitution to feed her opioid addiction. The niece ultimately became a target of a sheriff's deputy operation that was a prostitution sting operation. On the night of the shooting, the deputies broke policy and came to John DeRosset's house to deliver a warrantless arrest on his niece. They were plainclothes officers. They were there well after dark when the niece opened the door. The undercover officer grabbed a hold of her and tried to take her into custody, never identified himself as a law enforcement officer. She started screaming to her uncle for help, thinking that she was being abducted by sex traffickers. John DeRosset, a uh, licensed concealed carrier, grabbed his Glock. He marched through his living room. He came out to the stoop where his niece was struggling with an unknown man, in his front yard he fired a single warning shot into the sky what he didn't realize of course is that that man that mary was struggling with with was a sheriff's deputy and that there are other deputies undercover stationed in his darkened yard they started firing back uh gunfight ensued john was struck a couple of times the niece was grazed with a bullet and unfortunately and tragically john shot one of the deputies below his uh, bulletproof vest it it hit him in his gut and he was in critical condition for a long time he happened to survive but in the end john dorosset was charged with three counts of attempted murder on law enforcement officers it's rare that lawyers or people who work with lawyers like me get an opportunity to talk candidly about cases that we've worked on in great detail because there's ethical obligations to the clients but in this particular case john derosset wanted other people to learn from his experience so it's a really extraordinary and rare opportunity that uh you get to hear my Pinella, the the key lawyer on this case and Don West, who is heavily involved, especially during the critical immunity hearing that came at the end, get to talk about this case honestly and in such great detail. And in the course of our conversation today, we're going to be able to hit upon uh, a few key issues that I'm excited for you guys to hear about. And one of them is that every self-defense case has unusual twists and turns that make it atypical I've, I've i mentioned in the podcast i've written an article about this before there is no quote-unquote typical prosecution in the self-defense case and so we spend some time getting into the nitty-gritty legal nuances of this case but it's important for armed defenders and concealed carriers to understand that every self-defense case 
that gets prosecuted has extraordinary, uh, strange details that the case hinges on. And in this particular case, what you're going to hear in today's podcast is the entire thing, whether or not John was going to be considered justified, hinges on the court's interpretation of whether or not John's knowledge of his niece's prostitution rose to the level of him using his home to further a criminal activity. We also get into a great conversation about warning shots and why it is almost always a bad idea for an armed defender to shoot a warning shot and how detrimental that could be to the case. So here's my conversation with Michael Pinella and Don West about the Jurassic case. We start with talking about how there is no typical prosecution in self-defense. Like if you've ever trained somebody on, or even taught a, like a kid how to do something, right? You find that in your mind, there's this, oh, here's an example of how this will usually go. But in practicality, it never goes the way it's going to usually go, right? There's always some, oh, well, here's this exception that happens when this thing occurs. And, you know, then you have to do this instead. And then you realize that all of life is exceptions to the rules that you think guide it, right? And so in our conversation of, of just our experience working on self-defense cases, just the ones that we've been able to work on together, they're all insane. They're all a composite of exceptions to the rule. And I think that's just what people are going to find if they ever... This is why we explore so many different cases, and this is why I like spending some time in the weeds because we're so connected to this case and we can communicate to our listeners that, that there is no, I just wrote this article that there is no typical prosecution. There is no typical result in a self-defense case because it is a, a branching set of pathways that can lead off into extraordinarily different directions. And you can't, when you get into it, you can never anticipate where it's going to go. And, and maybe we'll, we'll resume our conversation here we touched on this a little bit earlier, but in the very end, uh, John's freedom sort of hung in the balance over the question of whether or not his niece being a prostitute and living at his house constituted him operating a criminal operation out of his dwelling. Isn't that right? Yeah, I think it was actually even more... Smaller than that, because once once it got to the appellate court, they said, well, listen, like under the circumstances, you know, this guy was presumed to be in fear because in his mind, people had broken into his house. The appellate court agreed with us as a matter of fact that he didn't know they were cops. Right. Uh, Or at least that hadn't been proven at the lower court level that he did. And And this is this is all the appeal that you filed after the judge ruled against us. In the self-defense immunity hearing. Right, right. And so, it, really, they said, you know, the guy was acting in lawful. He used deadly force legally, you know. And, and in a lot of ways, that's what they were saying. Well, let's stop just for a second and point out that he fired a warning shot, and nobody really disagreed with that, right? Nobody claimed it wasn't that he aimed at somebody and missed and called it a warning shot. He fires the warning shot and people testified he raised his arm and his gun in the air, shot in the air. That was the shot. Unambiguous. Unambiguous. He wasn't trying to hit anybody. So that's not deadly force, is it? Because he clearly was trying to avoid using deadly force, not using deadly force. But, of course, that argument carries no weight whatsoever because as a matter of law, as the appellate judges easily and quickly pointed out, and the trial court judge was correct, you discharge a firearm, you have used deadly force. Right. Even if you pointed at the sky. Even if you pointed at the sky. So we were not going to make any headway with anybody claiming that, well, he didn't use deadly force. All he did was fire a warning shot. Right. So this is a warning for those of you that are thinking about firing warning shots. Don't. You have just now used deadly force, and while there may be some circumstances 
that legally you can justify it. Uh, it's going to be extremely rare, and this is one of those situations that took us four years. And um, how many hours in court and how many appeals before we finally settled out the issue that would have been resolved right from the beginning if he just hadn't pulled the trigger? Right. No, that's absolutely correct. And so to that point, it goes all the way up to the appellate court, and they're saying, you know, that use of deadly force, that warning shot that uh, we're going to go ahead and say that it was a warning shot, but we're also going to immediately say, we don't really care, though. It's the use of deadly force, so let's go with that analysis, Yeah, was justified under the circumstances as he perceived them. Uh, so but your take is that the appellate court would, had that shot been out of the house and directly into the head of one of the perceived attackers, one of the deputies, that's justified. The, the the appellate court would have felt that was justified as well at that point. Right? Yeah, by their logic, and, and and it's correct under the current state of the law. If you if he if he was justified in using deadly force at all, whether it was in the air or in someone's temple, then it was justified. Right. It it didn't matter whether you know it, it hit somebody or not, or whether it was an accidental. Well, that would have changed it if he didn't intend to use force at all. But the point is, right, Sean? That's exactly it. And so because he was justified in using deadly force, the question then became, uh, you know, in his mind, because it's always got to be reasonable. It's got to be, you have to be in imminent fear reasonably of great bodily harm or death to use right. deadly force. And so because it was reasonable and he was presumed to be in great bodily harm or, or in imminent fear, especially because it was at his house, to sure. your point, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, which, you know, gives him an extra layer. The question then became, yeah, but he's not entitled to these special pretrial, you know, immunity presumptions and protections and stand your ground or whatever you want to call it if he was engaged in criminal activity himself or if he knew that they were cops when he shot at him because obviously that would have changed the whole thing if the if he knew they were cops and they acted exactly as they did he couldn't have been acting reasonable when he shot at them when he used deadly force because his his presumption that they were there to commit some felony would have had to be it wouldn't that would not have been reasonable it doesn't, it doesn't pass. so so the, the we, in a huge victory, the appellate court agrees as fact that the shot was, that the use of lethal force was justified if he didn't know their cops, and the appellate court agrees that he didn't know their cops, and... And it would have been justified even if he were using the home for criminal activity, probably, but not in the posture we were in. That's what made it so unique. So the whole thing turned on, we've already decided he didn't know there were cops, so we can just put that one to the side on whether it was justified or not. He didn't know, so it was. And so the question became, hey, was he using the home for criminal activity if he knew that his niece was prostituting? So that's why I think it's even smaller than what you said. His whole life hung in the balance of, it wasn't even whether he was justified in using deadly force anymore. It all turned on whether he was engaged in criminal activity because he knew what his niece was up to. And so now, who did the appellate court say would be responsible for making that determination? They came to us and said, listen, we're not going to grant immunity. We're not going to dismiss these charges right now because we don't have enough information on whether he, A, knew they were police. We think he didn't, but we there's not enough in the record. And B, whether he was engaged in criminal activity at the time. So, guys... Uh, defense and state, you guys get the call. You can either ask the judge to make written findings on those two issues based on the hearing you already had, or you can have a new hearing. And so this... So, so to be clear, the, the judge had heard a week's worth of testimony, seen all this evidence, made the ruling that he was not justified according to the, the law, uh, but the appellate court said, wait a minute, these are the two elements of the law that we really need you to decide on, and that was not in that judge's ruling yet. So you either go back to that judge who heard it all and say, rule on these two things, or if you choose, go spend another week and make a whole nother case. Yeah, th- that's right. That Basically, the judge's order that was being reviewed by the appellate court failed to specifically address that issue. And the appellate court can't make it up. They can't start over. It's not their job. They to don't take that, testimony. Yeah. yeah. So if the record, so to speak, is incomplete, they remand it back to the trial court to address Remedy certain things. Now, in this case, 
the option was, well, the judge has already heard the thing anyway. Maybe she can make these decisions based upon the existing record, and, and we're allowed to have her do that if we choose. Or, on the other hand, you can start over, and you can make the whole record again and focus on those issues. Now, it might be interesting to point out that we have this grueling, intensive uh, immunity hearing and the judge, within a couple of weeks, she didn't take that long, within a couple of weeks, files the order that we're hoping ends the case. We firmly believe that we had made our case and we should win right now and right then and the case should be over. And so if she says that he deserves immunity, then the, the prosecutors can't proceed. The case is over. He's exonerated. Well, right. re regardless of whether they could proceed or not, maybe they could file an appeal. But for all intents and purposes, it's, it's over, it's over right. at that point. So it takes a few up to a couple, three weeks to get the order, and we're somewhat devastated. We're really disappointed. We should have known better, not to get too excited, but we we were disappointed. We really convinced ourselves that we were right, didn't we? We felt pretty good. Well, we, we knew he We convinced was. the reporters who were there to cover it. They had that every news network was there, and at the end of the week, they're like, yeah, why are they prosecuting But we were here? right, it turns out, and we knew that he was acting under the color of the law when he used deadly force. All right, so my point is, <laughs> my point is we lost, John's in jail. The next thing is we have to file the appeal. Uh, the procedure is a, what, writ of prohibition, I think is That's the right. procedural vehicle. So we have to get the record. We have to prepare the pleadings. Mike does a terrific job of drafting our writ. It goes back Which and forth. By the way, you have to pay the court to give you a transcript of an entire week worth of trial. Yeah. Right? So That's not free. But that doesn't happen overnight either. So John's in jail wondering, waiting for this thing to happen. By the time uh, we file our writ, of course, then the appellate court has to decide what to do with that. And they direct the prosecutor to file a response. And it goes back and forth until we get the order that we just now alluded to, which was the appellate court telling the trial court to fix the record and make these decisions. Well, that first phase was what, six months? It was easily six months. So John's sitting in jail for another six months, waiting for the appellate court to decide. And then we think maybe we'll win. You know, finally someone will listen to us and we'll win. And we get half a loaf. We get a big, important half. But we don't get the whole thing. So now it goes back to the trial court to reconsider. And, and, and our judge gets reassigned. So if we if we are going to do another hearing, it's going to be in front of a different judge. It, right. But we had, it was kind of funny. But it was determined that it could only be her. It couldn't be the, the uh, yeah. court, quote unquote, uh, like that particular uh, you know, judicial seat that could hear uh, that could make these new findings. If we went that direction, it would have to be the actual human being that heard the testimony. And so, I think it's important to note that the reason that she ultimately denied it the first time didn't contemplate these two issues, right, Don? It was she hung her hat on the fact that John just shot too late. And so, the, that he, yeah, she he, said he wasn't the, justified. She said the threat was over. The threat was over. The that was what was it was. Completely, in our mind, missed the point. Exactly, and didn't, mm -hmm. and and that's how she was able to not make findings on these two issues that were dicey because they were sort of in our favor. There wasn't really evidence that John was benefiting. Actually, there was no evidence. That I'd John like was our listeners to know, though, we won the case to start with. We in our minds, right, and in everybody else's minds too. Then we had six months where we had to spend, I think it's hundreds of hours. Well, yeah, the appeal. Yeah, between oh, the two of us. Yes, uh, and, oh and Huda. Yes, with uh, clerical Huda's help, and paralegal uh, help, and uh, associates. Associate. Right. Yeah. So we have hundreds of hours there. After hundreds of hours to prepare and present the hearing, we have hundreds of hours in the initial appeal. Uh, then it's remanded back. So we have to deal with all of that, and then I think relatively short form, we ought to continue that discussion. Though, what happens next? Right. Yeah. And and I gotta say, like. And John DeRossi doesn't understand how lucky he is that he's essentially got you uh, two at this point essentially working for free to see this case out in the right way and and a uh, uh, high-end uh, media consultant <laughs> on board. We to should point that. out that, that it, as a matter of fact, Sean was with us in this case and was with us for the entire immunity hearing and, and out of the goodness of his heart volunteered his time, similar to Don. Yeah, neither of them had gotten even a penny, and I don't think have. So there's that. The um, but but yeah, to Don's point, uh, 
we decided to have the judge make the findings. We thought that that would be in the in best interest, frankly, of everybody. And the last thing we wanted to do was put the, in all seriousness, we considered this, do we want to put the, the agent who was, you know, at that point he wasn't even working, I don't think, for the sheriff's office anymore or had a totally different thing. Um, through it again and the whole thing and we didn't want to go You're talking about the deputy who had been shot. Yeah. Subjecting yeah. he was he was there and watched every day. And then do we if we do it again, theory. do we have to put John on the stand, which was a whole other thing. So it, it had already been done. So basically both sides agreed, let's just have the judge make the findings. And we were hoping she would do the right thing. And I remember the hearing on that where we had to address what we were going to do. And both sides said, Judge, we'd like for you to make the findings on these two issues. Again, whether he was engaged in criminal activity at the time. By, by using the home to further it, and B, whether he knew that there were cops. And she was didn't seem too excited to have to make that call, but did. And sure enough, what was it done? A couple weeks, not long, yeah. she issued an order denying it again. And this time, her rationale was, okay, it's settled. The guy didn't know there were police. So she gave us issue so A. So we got that covered. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, she, she did not mess with us on that, but she said because he knew that she was prostituting out of the house, that then that translated to him using the home to further criminal... She called it a legal activity, and I think there's an important distinction, but uh, she meant to further criminal activity. And why I think that's a big deal for us, for everybody listening, is if her ruling would have stood, which, spoiler alert, it doesn't, but if it would have stood, that would have meant that regular people are culpable for the criminal actions of others. And especially in the self-defense world, that would have meant that if I'm aware that maybe my my 15-year-old kid is illegally smoking pot upstairs, but someone breaks into my house, I'm not allowed to claim immunity when I go and use deadly force because I'm aware that criminal activity is happening and I didn't do anything to stop it. That is the rationale. It's a dangerous precedent. It's a dangerous precedent. And that's what she said, though, because she even said he wasn't getting financial gain and there wasn't evidence of that, but because he knew it, and because she was doing something illegal or criminal, then he shouldn't be entitled to immunity. Which then that became an issue that created case law in Florida. Yeah. And yeah. so uh, it was funny because the day that that order came out, I was trying to figure out procedurally what do I do? I need to do something. I need to do I do a motion in the, at the appellate court to reconsider their original uh, opinion? What do I do? <clears throat> but but here's the silver lining in my mind. Yeah. Uh, let's not forget that. The silver lining of course, for us is, is there a path to getting John acquitted? And anything along that line that helps furthers us down down that road. So when the trial court said that John did not know they were police officers, basically cemented that, in our mind, that was now the law of the case. That was a factual finding that really could not be disputed. And what that meant to us is if everything else went down the toilet and we lost this hearing forever, we still had the right to go before a jury on a uh, on, on the murder charge and that we would clearly claim self-defense. We clearly had the right to claim self-defense. None of this would prevent us from claiming self-defense. And now we had the judge saying definitively that he, he our client John, did not know they were police officers. And I said at the very beginning, that was the single core issue in this case that made right. it or could break it. Right. And, and we, even if a jury had decided that John, uh, that, that, that he was using the property to for criminal activity, that doesn't violate... That, that doesn't convict him. That just avoided his ability to have it an immunity hearing. Does so, not defeat self-defense. So in a way, if we go to a jury trial now with the findings that the judge has made, there's there's almost no way to convict him. I because think procedurally we couldn't have lost, and I don't say that lightly. I actually got to thinking about it and did some research on this and went to the prosecutor with it because we had an, a controlling appellate court decision. Normally you have a controlling appellate court decision, especially in self-defense cases, that says here's a similar factual scenario and here's how it worked out and what is and isn't self-defense. In our case, in a very unique situation, we had an appellate court decision that was controlling and it was our case. <laughs> 
and the and the appellate court was saying the guy acted in lawful. It wasn't just self defense, guys. Remember, it was defense of others, and you're allowed to use deadly force to prevent the imminent commission of a forcible yeah. felony, which is what we hung our hat on. But I, know, just, I just want to real quick. So, so there's obviously a special jury instruction saying, guys, you have to determine that he his use of force was lawful. I was going to argue that because the appellate court said so. Go ahead. I, I just want to say how <laughs> extraordinary it is for a lawyer to create his own appellate case law that becomes controlling in his case, right? It's almost, it reminds me of, like, in Vietnam when they tried to set the jungle on fire and the fire created a rainstorm and that then extinguished the fire. That's, like, how berserk we're talking about here. And I, and I want to take a break, too. And I want you have your point in mind, Don, because I want to get back to it. Because, because, and this is specifically to your tenacity as a lawyer, and, and you're not getting a rate that justifies the work that you're doing on this. You're just dedicated to the case. All this time, I'm asking, when I see how much work all this is going to be, especially if we're going to pursue all these appellate endeavors, which are just going to add months and months, or maybe a year to to your life that you're giving up to try this case. And I'm like, let's just call Speedy and go to trial in 90 days, and I think we're going to get an acquittal. I bet we win this case. I know I can help you pick a jury that's going to quit this guy, right? Or, like, what's the best offer they've made? If it's if we can get this guy out of jail... We need to get him out of jail. He's in his mid to late 60s now. He doesn't have that much time left. Yeah, what right? we, can, we, can we plead as something now that we're narrowing their options to just get him out and call that a win, right? But Mike's like, no. <laughs> You're going to... I want to... I wanna, Climb every rung on this ladder until they're all exhausted. But in the end, what that meant is that they ran out of the prosecution ran out of options. But uh, did I ruin your? No, segue? not not a bit. I, I, I'm just kind of thinking through, looking again for that path. That was a good path. That was an option that we had. Just say screw it. You know, we're done with this. We need to get this resolved. And we're feeling pretty good now about trying the case. The press is on our side. Yeah. They think we're right. Yeah, and, and it was hard to imagine at that point what could go wrong that would have upset. Uh, it's possible, I suppose. Maybe there was a witness. Maybe there was a video. Maybe there was something that could have changed it or the prosecutor got better or luckier or who knows what. Or we could have been faced with the decision where we had to put our client on the stand. Uh, we didn't have to do that for the immunity hearing, and there were ways that the prosecutor could have designed its case in chief um, that would have essentially forced us to put him on the stand to perfect our self-defense claim. And at any time you put the client on the stand, um, a, a person who's not sophisticated, a person who's not legally savvy you're running a huge risk we don't know that we could we we, we still could have lost it i guess was the fear yeah 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 and, and and on that point too people don't realize it's really hard to be a good witness for yourself because your point. credibility is immediately suspect because you're going to say i'm innocent of course you are mm -hmm. right and you're nervous and your life hangs in the balance everything's at risk you're going to second think everything you say and that's yeah. going to affect whether you even seem genuine in your response or not it, it, it's very difficult and i've seen it very seldomly to see someone be a really good witness for themselves yeah. and we didn't want risk. we didn't want to give up all the progress we thought we'd made in the immunity hearing even though for expediency maybe it would have worked out but Oh my goodness! As we sit here talking now, think about it. What if it hadn't? Right, and, and we know you John know? would not have been. Uh, oh, wow. No, no fault to his character or to him. He just wouldn't have been a good witness. I don't know that anybody himself. with their life on the line. That's what we're saying. Yeah. Can take the stand and a not be overwhelmingly nervous just out the gate before anything even happens and anxious and constantly thinking I'm going to say the wrong thing, so overthinking what they're going to say. Then you, you couple that with a trained uh, interrogator, w w yeah, war hero who does this for a you know, and yeah, sure, an interrogator, or whatever. That it, they're they're designed to trip you up and to get you to say something that's and you know that and it hasn't even happened yet. And you're working. I don't know that anybody that really is facing that sort of stakes, even if they are a trained in, in the law and stuff like that, it does a great job. Um, 
right? I mean, it's it's just it's. Well, just, and you've I, been you've I, been a, a witness in your own case. Oh sure, I've testified <laughs> a few times, and I've never liked it. Never felt comfortable. Never felt in control. Or even remembered what you said after the fact. Exactly right. You black exactly. out. You zone out. You turn into a universe. I think everybody does. I think at one point I, I made up the expression, it's like holding a square dance in a minefield <laughs> when you're on the stand. Mm-hmm. You know, That's good. In a self-defense case, you only have to screw up one thing. Right? You just have to screw up one thing because while the prosecutor has to disprove self-defense beyond a reasonable doubt, they don't have to disprove everything. They just have to disprove that one thing that they just knocks have to make out doubt reasonable. self-defense. Yeah. So, oh, sure. Well, you yeah. know, in fact, in this case, what if John shot too late? What if they had released her and the threat was eliminated and they were running away, but yeah, he, he ends up He's shooting anyway? Shooting. And know, what so if they just felt terrible for the police officer? Yeah, what if sure. they didn't decide the case on the facts? They, so, so They hated a- John. They liked the police officer, the deputy, who was a likable guy, good guy. Good police officer who is caught in the middle of a tragic uh, screw-up. And this is really important because a jury is given jury instructions, but they're essentially allowed to come to their verdict in any way that they want to. And yeah. and if a, if, if a jury just doesn't want to follow the law, they can choose to do that. I mean, they can they can come up with their own... They can... What, uh, uh, we've seen people... Who are technically guilty get a uh, what a jury nullification. A jury nullification. Sean, you and I three months ago had a jury trial, right? Yep. Uh, Here in Florida, it was also very serious. It was three counts of vehicular homicide, and the jury acquitted my client of vehicular homicide Mm -hmm. and found her guilty of the lesser included misdemeanor of reckless driving. So, vehicular homicide was a second degree felony. Three people died, and they convicted her of ultimately one count of second-degree misdemeanor reckless driving. Now, that's impossible uh, from a logical perspective because if she was driving reckless and someone died, it's vehicular homicide. They, it was undisputed that three people died, yet they acquitted her of that and gave her reckless driving, meaning that they had to make the determination that no one died. And it was, it was already, we had already conceded that point from the gate. That's a great example of what you're both talking about. She was acquitted. It was an incredible thing. But the jury said, we, uh, we still are going to make a, a, a decision here that maybe isn't logical, maybe doesn't follow the mm-hmm. facts, but we, we want to do something. We don't want this woman to be convicted of this, but we don't want her to just walk totally. Well, and the, the pendulum can swing the other way, too. Of course, they, while instructed not to make decisions based upon emotion or sympathy or bias or what have you, uh, the judge... And we certainly can't control that. And while there are some limited remedies, if the verdict is completely uh, off the wall, where the court could make some decisions notwithstanding the verdict, that so rarely happens, it's almost as if it doesn't exist, right? The verdict is the verdict. And if otherwise the case was tried uh, within the rules, uh, that's it. There are a whole lot of people in prison because they got a bad verdict in a case. Their lawyers to this day will say, we should have won that one. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's, just, that's the dice you're rolling. Yeah. But I, I just, to, to sort of put a, uh, a cap on, on what ended up happening. So, so I didn't have to determine what I was supposed to do next. I figured I'd have to file another appeal from the new order that came down from the first opinion. It was so weird. The appellate court that day that they got her her order denying him again, issued an order at the appellate court level without me saying anything. Right. Requiring me, it literally said, Penella, file an amended petition for writ of prohibition on this new order. They told me to appeal her again, so that we can, so that they it could go back to them, so they could issue a new. Which opinion is a on pretty the case. good indication they're probably going to. Move your way, right? You like that's that? A, that's, yeah. a, that's an optimistic. <laughs> you never uh, see it, but you like it. <laughs> you, you don't call a client and say, "Guess what? We won." But I didn't even have an option. They said I shall. I, I had thirty days to file an amended. Or petition. you're in contempt of the court. All right, right? technically, I could have been. Yeah, it was so yeah. weird. I don't think it would have gone that way. But yes, I suppose it was very weird. I was court ordered to appeal her. Yeah. By the people By who the wanted court. it back, yeah. so they could make an opinion, and then they did, and ultimately they, they, yeah, I think they came down correctly, saying. No, no, no. We're not going to say that this guy was engaged in criminal activity because he knew someone else might have been. And thank God they did that, right? Well, and they knew they knew that there was important case law 
in the balance with that decision, and they wanted to decide it properly right then and there. I yeah. think. And they gave like, a good nod. I think you're right. And they gave a good nod to the police too, saying, "We don't take this lightly." And I, for anybody listening, because the sheriff got on on the horn right after the the final opinion, when they, by the way, did grant immunity and dismiss the charges. And the prosecutors called you and said, "Yep, yeah, we're dropping it, and it's over." And, yeah, 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 that was very cool. But 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 the sheriff. Again, just continue to say, no, 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 this was wrong. And this case law is going to give people carte blanche in the future to use this to, to be justified to shoot police. And that is just not what the opinion said. It, it, the opinion went out of its way to say this is a very unique and extraordinary set of circumstances. And we don't take it lightly that a law enforcement officer almost lost his life and really kind of went out of their way to give them a lot of credibility that... I'm not even sure they necessarily was warranted under the facts of the case, but they did it. And so for the sheriff to come around and say what he said was just, I think, further, you know, you want to talk about being a bad sport, but but it's so much more serious than that when you're a sheriff and you're sitting here telling everybody what you're saying. But I, I think it's important for the listeners, you really just can't shoot police. I mean, the, the, the set of circumstances that I can think of where this would have gone the way it did is limited to, like, this one. I mean, really, yeah, yeah. You know, it, it, it is so... Was, you know, so unique. I know there's a couple others that we, we have right now that are happening. But, gosh, um, appellate courts, nobody takes self-defense seriously when the victim is a cop. They're, they're, you know, you're, you're already starting at a disadvantage. Yeah, yeah. well, let, okay, I, I agree 100%. He didn't know they were the police, so that's good. That means he at least had a chance to raise the claim. Uh, the, the prosecutor threw up every obstacle possible. The judge went along with it for the longest time until finally the facts were clear enough and there were orders entered that the appellate court could really look at it factually and legally. And John uh, prevailed, which basically means only that the charges were dropped. He still spent two and a half or three years in jail out right. of uh, four, yeah. right? He's still financially bankrupted yep. by it. And we could have been too, yeah. you know, frankly. And um, while there may have been some good lessons that he learned and maybe other people involved, that doesn't erase the board and give you a, a, a place to start over. And why did it why did it start to begin with? Well, there, it was a constellation of missteps, which if I were going to be as I often am, I would call it a cluster, filling yes, that, that yes. last word. But let's call it a constellation of missteps. But regardless, I think it reached critical mass. And it probably wouldn't have, but it reached critical mass for a couple very clear and articulable reasons. Okay. And um, let's remind our people what those are because um, they could find themselves in a similar situation. It's How many times have we seen it, Sean, where something, I get the call at two o'clock in the morning and it's somebody that's involved in a situation, they need to know what happens next. Maybe they've been arrested, maybe they haven't, but they've been involved in something and all of a sudden they are the focus of an investigation. A homicide investigation. Every one of their actions before and after are now being scrutinized. And um... Yeah, so here's one of the lessons, <laughs> right? So we, a lot of this has been a long conversation and, and a couple of different parts for our audience. And, and part of that is to give them the benefit of understanding a little bit of the nitty-gritty of, of what goes into how complicated mm -hmm. a self-defense claim is and how we talked about there's no there's no no one size color. fit all yeah. prosecutors mm -hmm. are going to be different and mm -hmm. you're going to be you're going to be on some weird clause on the end of a law that decides whether or not you have a claim or not potentially right and so often we see that the exception is the rule so so if we've illustrated abundantly now that that the prosecution is punishment on its own and everyone loses even if you win and that uh it's not a sure thing and that um it's complicated and it's expensive and it'll turn your life upside down right but so so aside, that lesson's learned let's say that mm -hmm. here's mm -hmm. one of the things uh, when it comes to home defense and we see you know there's a I think an assumption in a lot of home defenders' minds that if someone has broken into my house or if someone is attacking me at my house 
and I use deadly force, I, I got a get out of jail free card, right? And we've we've explored cases where when someone's forcibly intruded into your house, that's right, right. Then right. the laws in most places, and some are more generous than others, give you the presumption that they're there to do you harm, and they don't have to uh, technically or actually pose a immediate threat of death or bodily harm. You can assume that because they've forcibly broken into your house. The law allows you to assume that they do present that threat. That's right. Right? Right? Now that changes a little bit once you've stepped out your front door or when someone's on one side of the door and you're on the other and it gets complicated if you're the one that opened the door to it. Right? And all of a sudden this becomes much more complicated. So where people get, where people who assume the protections of the castle doctrine and use deadly force and then get in trouble, it's almost always because they don't know who they're shooting at, and they haven't been able to properly assess the the threat to them, and that gets very complicated and derosic because we're throwing in the defense of another. But what we, our whole defense was, he didn't know they were cops. He didn't know anything about who they were. Everything he had was presumptions based on incomplete information that was wrong, and when he decided. Once they start shooting at him, he's obviously has an immediate threat. But when he decided to fire that round into the air, he didn't know what was going on. And, and that's exactly right. And that's I'll, I'll put the dot on the I or cross the T on that because uh, and you know thank thank John for giving us the permission and the opportunity to talk about this. And to you talk know, about it candidly. He's given yeah. us the opportunity to discuss the case in detail, uh, to share our thinking, and basically create his ordeal and his experience as a, a learning moment, as a teaching opportunity for those that could conceivably find themselves in a similar situation or glean some other value from this. But to your point, when John walked out the door, he may or may not have said something. It depends on who heard it and who didn't, but it's, hey, who's out there? What's going on? Or something. And he raises the gun and fires in the air. Admittedly, the most, the best he could see were some shapes. Now, he knew people were there or had been there because he saw them as they were dragging his niece out the door when he was coming to her rescue. But by the time he got outside, they were largely disappeared into the dark. Mm -hmm. So what did he say to the police when they questioned him? What did he say to us when we asked him, what was that all about? I fired the gun in the air to run them off. That was his thinking. And how many times have you heard that? I've heard that before. I've heard it half a dozen times when I've talked to people about warning shot situations. Right. I was going to run them off, thinking that, well, if I go out there and I fire the gun... They'll know I'm serious. They'll know I'm serious. They'll know I'm capable. And they will change their mind. Whatever they had decided to do, they're going to change their mind and run off. Mm -hmm. So that was his thinking. That was his logic that's shared by a lot of people. It just happened to be completely wrong for the circumstances and created this avalanche of, of what happened afterwards. Right. So he didn't know who he was shooting at when he actually was shooting at them. And before any of it started, he didn't see anybody out there, even though the appellate court ultimately decided he could have legally shot at somebody. Mm -hmm. What he do? Put it up in the shot up in the air to run them off, and the response in his mind could only have been, "They'll leave. They're going to run off. They'll take off because they're not going to want to mess with me." But of course, he was completely wrong. They were police officers, so they immediately returned fire. And he's lucky he lived, and so is everyone else. But that's not to say that whoever else it could have been, had he been right, that they were intruders or home invaders or whatever, they could have responded exactly the same way, right? What's to say they would have been run off? What's to present, prevent them from simply doing the same thing the police did? Shooting out of the dark, and he's lucky he lived at all, frankly. So there's a hundred little lessons there to learn what not to do in yeah. that situation. And the thing with warning shots, too, I feel like once, and we've had this conversation 
in our conversation about this case, but the firing a weapon, whether you've pointed at someone or at the sky, is the use of deadly force. And in an awful lot of jurisdictions that we've looked at, the display of a weapon is the threat of use of deadly force often, but not the actual use of deadly force. So you've the second you've fired around, even if it's at the sky, you put yourself, if you're wrong about your self-defense, in a whole different universe of felony compared to what would probably be a misdemeanor. And and what I'm saying, if you're wrong about who they are, you've just given them justification to use deadly force against you, okay. and you might be considered the first aggressor if exactly. you win the firefight. Mm-hmm. And and now, and from a tactical point, you've just shown them where you are because they've just heard your gunfire and seen the muzzle. And like our like, friend Steve Moses said, you've indicated that you actually don't want to hurt them. That that maybe you're not willing to shoot them if you just wanted to scare them away. Nothing good comes out of that. No, and that's if you live to talk about it. Right. Mm-hmm. Isn't that really what it comes down to? If if you're shooting, if if you are in, if you really have to under the law, use deadly force because the threat to you or another is so great and so imminent that there is no other real option. And then you choose not to shoot them, and that and you were right about it being so serious. And then you just gave up your one shot, and now you're dead. Yeah. Or, or you didn't because you were wrong about your presumption of using deadly force in the first place, and you used it inappropriately. Right. Because, because had those guys been actual sex traffickers, uh, the second there's a shot in the air. They're probably going to shoot him dead. They have the, given them the opportunity to fire back and and maybe in a more coordinated way than the the, the deputies did in this case. You know, and some people do run away. I just I just had one where my guy was giving uh, doing a low level marijuana deal and he was in the driver's seat of the car and he had a passenger and three guys came up to the side of the car. I mean, we're talking about like twenty bucks worth of weed here. And gave him the baggie to check it out. And then all of a sudden, the three, you know, thugs pulled out a gun on my guy, who's 21 with no criminal history, and threatened to kill him. They were, they said, we're taking your weed and we're, you know, not going to pay you. I know that case. It was the defensive display that ended the threat. And he fired too late. Yeah. And, And he solved that problem. With the defensive display, with a misdemeanor if you're wrong, and got in trouble because he fired a weapon. I bring up the point to make to just drive it home. That then once the gun was pointed at him, he pulled out his own gun. The three guys with the initial gun that were the real threat ran away at his display of the firearm, but he shot anyway. And I think in the moment... He thought he had to, and uh, in order because he thought they were going to kill him. And I don't think that he processed it, you know, all of that at that moment. He had, all he knew was there was a gun in, in his face, so he pulled the gun and shot. But there's video, and it shows them all backing away and running. By the time the shot happened, he didn't have to make, the, you know. So, so it just goes to each. We don't really know, guys, right? Exactly how we're going to respond in a situation like that, and that's why I think these discussions are so important. Of course, now that we're talking about. The things that uh, that John did right and the things that John did wrong, he didn't have to do any of the stuff that he actually did as it turned out. Because as soon as he got to the door with the gun, uh, Mary was let go. So I think before he fired the gun or very close to it, she was already, uh, because they saw him coming, Uh, she was inside the house. So arguably the presence of the gun changed the circumstances of it what was going on. But, but I would argue that he didn't know that. Well, he has the absolute right to arm himself and go outside and check it out under those circumstances if he wants to. He didn't know that he had already solved the problem. Yep. When, and just by coming with a firearm. Nobody could argue that. Nobody could argue that he shouldn't have armed himself, that he, that he didn't have the legal right to go outside. But there was a point in time where he carried it too far. Beyond no, no, and this is really important to stress. You mentioned it, but... but the the deputies there let her go and she was clamoring back into the house and and now 
No shots fired at that moment. Well, we should we should be clear here. She did not make it back into the house before shots were fired. It was all very very fast. Well, and here's and, the, and there's differing opinions on exactly when she was released and how and how far into the yard she was. I, I think it can be. I think it can. There can be a consensus, can't there? Though that she wasn't no fight. No, that the first person that fired a gun was John. Yes. So any shot that may have grazed Mary was in response to John firing the gun. For sure. Okay. Yes. Yeah. But but the question becoming uh, was in John's mind things happening so quickly should should he have come out with a gun and not fired maybe or was he in fear that if he did that he would have been shot now all of a sudden he's got you know I who knows well there's a lesson right there too it's chaos it's crazy in that situation and. Who knows? You know, who knows? He doesn't know. The police didn't know. Nobody knew what was happening or was going to happen until something, you know, jumped it off. Yeah. But we do know that he did fire a warning shot, so he wasn't, um, I, I suppose he thought that was going to be enough. He did. He clearly said, I'm going to run him off. Yeah. And um, there are a lot of people that won't argue with that thinking, that yeah. would have done the same thing. And frankly, I might have in a different life or a few years ago before I thought it through and tracked through some of this stuff and actually have looked at situations, learned a little bit more about home defense. Sean, yeah. you've talked about there's lots of things you can do to make your home more secure, give yourself more time, give yourself more information, uh, create other options. Well, yeah, and I'm a huge fan of outdoor lighting. I want my house, when you're driving down the street, to be the the one least likely to be broken into. Like, I'm not going to mess with, I'm going to go to the dark one on the corner. I'm not going to go to this guy's house that's got lights on outside. Right. And and if John had had lights on the outside of his house... He sees who they are. He sees who they are. And he has a Mary different... Mary sees who they are. And it's different, and, and they can go down differently. So it's it's uh, it's funny, because I think, I think we can all agree that, that in John's heart, he thought he was doing probably the best thing in an extraordinary circumstance Agreed. where he truly, right? And so when we criticize him, we're not saying he's a bad person or, or even that his his judgment wasn't sound based upon the assumptions that he made and not knowing what we know about the danger of warning shots, right? If you haven't mm -hmm. been taught that or seen it in the aftermath through our eyes from the criminal defense point of view, you can't know that. That's part of what this whole thing's about is to help people who haven't been there dispel uh, uh, myths and misinterpretations about what, what mm -hmm. things are like. But but as soon as the, the first round is squeezed off in a gun, all the options become extraordinary and the results mm -hmm. become uh, amplified. You know, it's a, you're in a whole different world and it's, and here's the thing. And maybe this is the, I think this is one of the biggest lessons for concealed carriers or armed home defenders in this case is that, uh, you never know everything about the circumstance, right? In this case, he didn't know who they were. He was wrong about it. He didn't know why they were there. He was wrong about it. He didn't know how many of them there were. He was going into a completely unknown circumstance. And even when someone's broken into your house, you're telling us, Mike, about a case where people went to the wrong... They thought they were in a different apartment. Right. And then they all of a sudden they're having a... a you know, there's a gunfight resulting from a mistaken uh, uh, identity or in the wrong place. You know, there's... Per, you just don't ever know all the details. And so... What that means tactically is anything that you can do that will give you a little bit more time to make the decision, if you have that luxury, right? If it's if it's truly immediately life or death, you have to make the call you got to make. And, and you're going to be judged on it, and, and hopefully you made the right choice, right? Uh, but if you can do something, whether it's a defensive display and a shout out, stop where you are, who are you? Let her go before you fire the shot. You have you'll get more information that you can work with before you make a really important choice, mm -hmm. right? And and John certainly didn't know that he might uh, not have immunity because 
potentially something illegally was happening in his house. You don't, you don't, even if you read the statute and you know the law, if you're not a lawyer who's been through it, you don't know what the case law is or how things are going to be interpreted or what things that you don't know about might affect your whole freaking defense, right? You just don't know. And so every opportunity to, to prevent or avoid or retreat or de-escalate a use-of-force incident uh, is changes there, your life. Yes. Is the better first choice. Mm-hmm. And I think, to your point, there's another lesson to be learned here, that even if it turns out the other person, you don't have all the information you said as a premise, right? And so even if it turns out the other person that you're shooting at or you think is a threat is the one making the mistakes, like in this case, they weren't actually committing felonies, right? They turned out to be law enforcement, but they made serious mistakes. And that was pretty obvious, but it didn't stop John from having to fight for his life. Yeah, and, and that's the thing too. You don't wanna you don't wanna be put on trial because someone else messed up. You know, and it doesn't matter in the end. It doesn't I mean it it it, it you hash it out, but but don't let somebody else's bad judgment drag you down. A corollary, of course, is this case also confirms, reaffirms the notion that self-defense is a very personal defense. It matters really only when it comes right down to it, what's going on in your head. Uh, whether whether you are subjectively, meaning you, you yourself think you're mm-hmm. acting reasonably, you yourself perceive a real threat, make your decisions accordingly, and also, of course, whether ultimately, objectively, you've acted reasonably and made reasonable choices in a difficult situation. That's why um, it doesn't matter legally that they were, in fact, police officers. What only mattered, and the appellate court made that very clear when the facts were finally uh, distilled, was that it, what, it, it mattered what was going on in John's head. He, had re- it, he, believed, he didn't believe they were police officers. He believed they were intruders. And that based upon all of the information, the lighting conditions, the circumstances, all of the stuff that played out, that was a reasonable conclusion. And because he reasonably made that decision under those circumstances, his decision to use deadly force under those circumstances was also reasonable. Now, it got cloudy because of some of the other stuff on the side. The noise and the system was whether he was engaged in criminal activity because his niece had a drug addiction and was seeing guys on the side, et cetera, et cetera. But the principles are clear, and the, the, the analysis pretty straightforward. And I think that's terrific for people to know. You have to know what you're thinking. You have to be thinking reasonably. You have to reasonably assess the threat, and then you have to reasonably respond to it. And uh, even though you might be wrong, as long as you pass that ultimate litmus test of reasonableness, you should be okay. You should be okay. But there are other parts to what's reasonable that go into that litmus test because there's an imminency factor, isn't there? That you, you can't be, you, you might perceive a situation, but if it's not an imminent deadly threat, basically, or, or, or great bodily harm threat to you or another, if that, or, or if it's not the imminent commission of a forcible felony, then you're you, whether you think you're reasonable or not, you're not. That, so that, that's right. That's where your subjective assist, assessment is contrasted with the trier of fact, the jury's de- uh, decision, which basically they look inside their own head and their heart and they say, "Would well, I have done the same thing under these circumstances?" And they say, "Hell no, that guy's." you know, wacky. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But if they're saying, yeah, I I might not have agreed with that or wished I could have done something different, but I could see me doing that based on what he knew. And of course, all of that then helps underscore the importance of thinking right, acting right, being right, not creating more noise in the system by making stupid and foolish social media posts or having bumper stickers on your car or modifying your gun in such a way that it looks exotic and saying things and being um, contentious and hostile and creating an opportunity for the prosecutor in their assessment of what you did to point out to the trier of fact, whether it's the judge in an immunity hearing or the jury 
at a trial that, yeah, but, and then all of a sudden with enough chipping away of that other stuff, your decisions maybe weren't so reasonable after all. The threat maybe wasn't quite as imminent as you claimed it was. Maybe the force that you were responding to wasn't quite as deadly as you claimed it was. Um, maybe you're as a result, your force was disproportional. Maybe you had a clear opportunity to avoid it. And even though maybe you weren't legally required to avoid it, the jury's going to want to know if you had that choice and chose not to avoid it on the overall assessment of whether you acted reasonably. And there's only a handful of places in the country where the jury's not allowed to consider an opportunity to retreat on this notion of reasonableness. Um, you have to assume that's true depending on where you are, of course, but you have to assume all of that stuff fits I want to underscore. I want to underscore that point, too, because I believe that strongly with the stand-your-ground laws. Even though you don't legally have a duty to retreat, and we talked about how subjective juries can be and they can judge cases on their own standards and come to their verdicts however they choose is right, that I believe even in the hardest of stand-your-ground states, a jury will judge you on your decision not to retreat if there was a clear opportunity to do so because they're going to project that into your intent. If you if you were truly in fear and you had an opportunity to retreat and you didn't, I, I got questions about how true your fear was. And how much you value human life. And do they uh, want somebody uh, who doesn't value human life to be walking, walking uh, uh, the streets again? And you, in the end, you want people to be sympathetic to you. And I think That's John right. DeRossett won the sympathy of the press after they saw him. In a weird sort of way, he got a little sympathy from the cop he shot, who, who lightened his stance on the man after he witnessed the entire immunity hearing. I think even the judge, although she wasn't ever going to budge or side our way, uh, felt better about it. it. You know, didn't hate the guy. I think she was convinced at some point that he wasn't a, 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 a guy looking for this fight. I no, I don't think she did. I, I think she thought that he, yeah. I, I, it, that was what was so frustrating. She understood it as it was, that he didn't know what was going on. And so... And also, to your point, Don, like when you talk about the social media stuff, how you live your life every day as a concealed character, <laughs> character as That's a concealed good, carrier. Like as a concealed character, because we don't really want those guys, do we? No, but, but, but concealed character. But if you live your, if you demonstrate a pattern of good character, and you dem and you have an actual um, uh, uh, appreciation, respect for life, and you're not looking for confrontations. And in fact, you you go out of your way to avoid confrontations. That that all affects whether a prosecutor even wants to move forward with charges or not. Yeah, not only is that a pretty good way to live your life, but it's a really good way to go into a self-defense shooting uh, case. When you are the guy who's not easily provoked, you're not the guy who's looking for the fight. You're the guy who seems reasonable and... and in all manner of living. And all of a sudden, the fact that when you say, I was in fear for my life, I faced an imminent threat of great bodily harm or death, and I wished I hadn't had to do it, but I had no choice. I couldn't get away. The guy wasn't stopping. I gave him warnings. I tried. Whatever it was, the explanation then clearly justified what the outcome turned out to be. As tragic as it may have been, you've now set the stage for the law to favor your use of lethal force. Yeah. And, and the choice to be a concealed carrier then becomes a, a choice you make every day. All your actions have ramifications upon your choice to be a concealed carrier. Right? It's a, it's a whole life commitment. Well, it's an awesome responsibility. If that's the choice you're making, it's a lifestyle. Right? You, you can't, I don't think, be a responsible concealed carrier and not be aware of that fact as you go through your day if you intend to use that weapon. I think that you have a responsibility to everyone around you to be as, as clear-headed and responsible as you can possibly be uh, and understand these things. Otherwise, it's, it's just, it, it, it can become reckless. 
All right, guys, that's the podcast. I'm glad you listened through to the end. Not long ago, we were talking to Steve Moses about the Kyle Rittenhouse case. I asked Steve if he thought Rittenhouse had won, and he said something I think is very true. He says, you don't really win if you're criminally prosecuted for self-defense. Even if you're exonerated, the best you can do is survive. I think John DeRosset's case is a great example of that. In the end, he was exonerated, and he's off living his life, but he lost four years And he lost so much more in the course of his defense. And uh, I think that's an important lesson for concealed carriers. Thanks for listening, guys. We'll have something new for you next time. Until then, be smart, stay safe, take care.